First of all, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we live, work and hold our events on. I pay my respects to the Wurundjeri and Boonarung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. My name is Claudia Nankervis and I'm your host. This, <laughs> this is the Melbourne Fringe Festival edition of Backyard Stories and it's the first Backyard Stories in Melbourne since the massive world tour that I just did. I desperately needed a break from Melbourne post-COVID and a bit of a reset and um, some more inspiration. So I did what every 27-year-old worrying about their life not being settled and stable enough does. I went to a very expensive film festival in New York before going to visit a friend in Amsterdam, which wasn't too expensive, and then to London, which was totally out of this world expensive. I went to Rome, I went to Italian beaches, I visited mountain streams in Florence and I saw the castle in Edinburgh. I spent all my money and when I say all, I actually mean it. But I didn't just drink, eat, kiss, sunbathe, read, dance, observe the world aimlessly, I participated. With the help of friends, I held backyard stories in three of the world's greatest cities, New York, Amsterdam and London. And now I'm back here and it was a, an incredible time. To see how the event translated so seamlessly to different audiences in new cities was thrilling. But I guess, as we all know, everyone loves listening to a good story, especially when it stays with you and you find yourself thinking about it for days and remembering different, different details. That's when you know something special has happened. Doing the shows overseas meant I had the chance to meet and work with locals from those cities, enjoy their accents, their turn of phrase, stories, stories, stories. I am endlessly curious about people, all people, and travelling is one of the best ways to satisfy that curiosity. I met a girl who had grown up in an evangelical Christian household and had to come to terms with the fact that she'd lost her faith. I met a man who took photos of me on a rooftop in New York and then didn't respond to my texts for weeks. And then when we hung out again, asked, well, why aren't you posting those photos online? I met some Cambridge students who took us punting down a river. I didn't know what punting was either. There was the man called Kip who sang songs to my friend over FaceTime for an hour. The woman in Edinburgh who ate four ice creams a day. The grandmother who let me stay at her house for two weeks and stayed up late to gossip about a date that I'd been on. The tall, beautiful Dutchman with the bluest eyes I've ever seen. But they weren't all strangers. I met up with my younger brother and his eight friends in Italy and ended up sleeping on the dirty floor of their hostel dorm as you do at 27. We rode lime scooters around the cobble streets of Rome all night until the sun came up and I felt like I was 20 again and tried to ignore and be blasé about the constant notifications on my phone telling me that my account was overdrawn. It was time to come home. Interacting with people is one of the things I love most about what I do. There's something so special about being led into someone else's world, their life. It can be a brief encounter with a stranger that I'll never see again or catching up with a dear friend I've known for years. For me, it's all about connection. So with that in mind, the word for this edition of Backyard Stories is meeting. You'll be hearing from five storytellers who have written a piece around that word. The story can mention the word, be based off the word, or be written entirely about the word. It's up to the writers. So without further ado, I'm so pleased to introduce our first speaker for tonight, Rupert Bevan, who's a writer, performer, and also an usher colleague of mine. 
uh, whose show Darling Boy is playing at Melbourne Fringe at the Butterfly Club. It's a beautiful, heartbreaking show about first love, family, sweaty clubs and growing up. I'm so thrilled to have you here tonight, Rupert. Thank you, Claude. Thank you. That was a beautiful introduction. Hello, everyone. <clears throat> the summer of Adele's 25 album. <laughs> Hello. You know. And just before I started year 12, my parents and I are driving down the highway heading towards the beach. At this point, I hadn't come out to my mum and dad, and I still haven't. They know. <laughs> I just never said anything and they never asked. I went on my phone and I found that one of my friends who is actually here tonight had downloaded Tinder for me as a joke. Now, during school, I knew of Tinder, but I never dared to download it. Not in my hometown. Apart from a hand job in the school gym in year 10, I'd never done anything with a boy before but um, it was summer, I was 16 and two hours away from home. The chance to see what guys were out there was too much of an opportunity to pass up. I came across this one boy with beautiful olive skin, big green eyes and floppy Hugh Grant hair. He was lovely. I swiped right and we matched. Hey, how are you going? He said. Uh, hey, uh, good thanks. I'm just uh, down for a holiday. Do you live on the coast? Yeah, I do. Just graduated from school. Oh, congratulations. Uh, what are you doing next year? Heading to uni. I see you like to travel. What's been your favourite destination so far? Um, New York, definitely. I went there last year and it was amazing. Yeah, New York is fantastic. I would love to live there someday. <laughs> Me too. I was basically planning our wedding already. Further online stalking reveals that he came from a large family. Captain of rowing. His sisters looked kind of bitchy, but in a really fun way. <laughs> he and I kept talking and talking until we talked for a month. In the morning, his name was the first thing that I'd see on my screen. And at night, things got uh, <laughs> flirtatious. <clears throat> he, uh, he once asked me to send him a picture of myself. <laughs> in my pajamas. <laughs> You're beautiful, he wrote. <laughs> I'm smiling. He said he was smiling too. After two months of talking, we planned to meet up. He would drive the two hours up to where I lived and we would go out for dinner together. That afternoon, I raced home from school and I pulled off my uniform. I fretted over which shirt looked best with my white jeans, baby blue or check. I gave my hair a nice part and put on my very sophisticated loafers that I'd gotten express delivered from ASOS. I told mum that I was going to the movies with friends. To this day, I've never seen Holding the Man. At 6pm, I ran outside and up the street came his red car. 
The setting sun illuminated it as it drove past the white picket fences of our street. I ran over and got in next to him. It took me a moment to realise that I was looking at the real him. His eyes, his neck, his hair. He was... lovely. Over dinner, we talked about everything. There was never an awkward gap. It was as if we'd known each other our entire lives. He paid and then we drove around town and pulled up at a lookout. The lights of my small town twinkled below like the fairy lights I had from Typo in my room. <laughs> there I was, 16, and on my first ever date. By then it was midnight and I couldn't possibly let him drive two hours home, so I made the very adult decision to sneak him into my bedroom. We got into my bed not daring to touch each other. We lay there in complete darkness, whispering back and forth. We used my laptop to give us a bit of light. Its white glow softly illuminated us. I finally turned to him and said, have you ever kissed anyone before? Yeah, he said, have you? No. He paused briefly and then suddenly said, well, I think we should change that. <laughs> we didn't stop kissing for three perfect hours, muffling every moment of joy in case my parents heard us. But after that first kiss, I didn't care who saw us. I wanted to shout and scream, run down the hut, you know, the main street hand in hand. I didn't care who saw us. Not my parents, not the boys from school, not the hacker probably watching us through the webcam. <laughs> he and I fell in and out of sleep, wrapping our bodies around each other. I wanted every part of him for me. As the sun rose, we crept downstairs and walked through the garden back to his car. I stood in my pyjamas and watched him drive off, illuminated by the same golden light that brought him to me. I stayed standing in the street for quite a while. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you, Rupert. Go see Darling Boy at the Butterfly Club, this Fringe Festival. Next up, we have Sunanda, who is a comedian, writer and producer born in Delhi, raised in Bangkok and now living in Melbourne. They have an impressive list of credits, including working with Broad City's Alana Glazer and musical comedian Reggie Watts. Their show, Sunanda Loves Britney, sold out this year's Melbourne Comedy Festival and is playing at this Fringe Festival until the 14th of October, so definitely go see it. Please welcome them to the stage.
Um, when Claudia said that the word was meeting, I immediately had PTSD. I used to work at an advertising agency, so meetings just meant fucking waste of time where no decisions were ever made. Um, several years ago, I stopped working in advertising and uh, in producing, and I decided to pursue comedy myself. And a couple years ago, I was living in LA, and I had to fly back to Southeast Asia for my first ever tour. It was sick. I was gonna be in Bangkok, where I'm from. Still counts. Uh, Singapore, and I was gonna go to Manila in the Philippines. So I was really nervous. I was in LA, and I was like, all right, really gotta get some sleep on this flight. It's a long ass flight from LA to Bangkok, and then I have to do these three cities in like a week, in like six days, less than a week. So I was like, what is the responsible thing to do? The responsible thing to do is to get some sleep on this plane. How am I gonna do that? Marijuana is legal in Los Angeles. And so I went to a dispensary, as any responsible adult would do, and um, got myself some edibles. You, uh, you don't smoke on the plane. <laughs> Take it from me, don't, don't smoke on the plane. I got, I got myself some edibles, and I was like, okay, I'm not very familiar with edibles, so better safe than sorry. Let's pack it in. So I got myself a, a Rice Krispie treat um, that had 100 milligrams of THC. That meant I don't know. I understand numbers, but I don't understand THC. Anyway, I was like, maybe that's not enough. 100, that's not that big a number. So I'm also gonna get a backup chocolate bar that had 300 milligrams of THC. And so I get on my flight and I start nibbling at my Rice Krispie Treat and about 60% through the Rice Krispie Treat, I forget how to do math. Um, but then when I landed I, I, and I passed out for about 14 hours, woke up and I just had a short, another uh, second flight part. That's how I sound when I'm stoned can't get it out but just as the second part of my connecting flight to go and I was like wow that was great I got 14 hours sleep that is legit that is awesome and I only went through 60% so I only consumed 60 milligrams of THC to knock me out for 14 hours and I smoke weed every night you can tell by my hair <laughs> and so I get to Bangkok I'm staying at my parents place and um, I was like, okay, I, I'm going to Singapore in the morning. I'm clearly not that dumb to take drugs into Singapore. I mean, Singapore is the only place I've ever flown to where when you land and get off the plane, they make you go through security check again. Like how, would, would I have just, I don't know, made heroin out of the, this dinner meal? <laughs> Impossible, I've tried. So I was like, okay, the smart thing is to leave, leave the edibles in Bangkok in my bedroom. And I went to Singapore, did the gig. It was great, fantastic. Next morning, flew home to Bangkok. Drugs are still there, but I was like, I don't need them. I'm fine. I'll save it for my flight back to LA. I get on a plane again the next day. I go to Manila. I land. I turn my phone on. 
turn off airplane mode, and it's ding, 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 ding. Messages from my mom. Sunanda, what is in the chocolate in your bag? I was like, why? Uh, why? What? What? Why? Why? Uh, B ate it. Now B. B is our housekeeper. I grew up in Asia, so don't judge. Don't judge. Um, but B's our housekeeper. She's been working with us ever since I was 16. I'm close to 40 now. I know I look good. She's been around. So and B B has a history of just reappropriating items from my closet into her closet. I once had a signed t-shirt by the artist Feist. Anybody was a fan back in the day? Musha boom, yeah. Um, I had a signed Feist t-shirt and came home from college once and then saw it faded on B's chest. I came home another time and saw B wearing my Roxy Quicksilver thongs. And I was like, all right, surf girl. Could be either of us, that's fine. That's yours now. Anyway, so my mom was like, B ate the chocolate. And now she thinks she's going to die. And I was like, um, uh, uh, what's in the chocolate? Um, medicine. A sleeping aid, if you will. Tell me the truth, Sunanda. Is it drugs? Um, te technically, in some countries. Yes. She was like, oh my God, what do I do? My mom looks at a glass of white wine and gets drunk. Like she doesn't even need to smell it, let alone taste it. So she has no idea what to do with this situation. And I'm in fucking Manila. That's a di very different country from Bangkok, Thailand, by the way, <laughs> just in case. And um, she's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I was like, uh, 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 looking up um, articles. And she's like, can she overdose? Is she going to die? And I was like, she's not gonna die. I've screenshotted a bunch of stuff I found on the internet. I'm sure it's reliable information. So I sent, I'm sending it to my mom and she's, I was like, you know what, mom? I think she just needs to, she just needs to eat. Eat? What is she gonna do? Can I, uh, uh, can I give her toast? I was like, yeah, kind of dry. <laughs> um, okay, she's like, uh, okay, can I put jam on it? And I was like, that would be uh, one step up. <laughs> and then I was like, maybe get her some chips or, and soda or something, let her watch TV and just sleep it off. <laughs> you know, so I was in Manila actually for two nights doing comedy and freaking out the whole time. And when I get home, Bee's finally over her high. She was high for two days. She went to sleep, woke up, still high, went to sleep again, and then like that, you know, slightly high. Like just high enough to like put on some slides and then get in the car and drive to KFC. Kind of high. Um, instead of like, high. Anyway, <clears throat> so I get home two days later, B is just coming off her high, and I was like, B, dude, I'm in so much trouble. Why'd you eat my chocolate? Why'd you steal my chocolate? And she's like, I didn't steal your chocolate. I was like, then please, explain to me how it entered your mouth and digestive system. 
She's like, okay, so um, I, you weren't there, so I went to your room and I saw your, your bag, your suitcase, and it, it looked like it had dirty laundry in it. So I took it and I dumped it out and I was like, oh, thank you so much, that's so considerate for doing my laundry. That's very kind, checks out, all right, next step. She's like, and then this, this bar of chocolate fell out and it, it was all melted. So I thought I would do the nice thing and go put it in the fridge. And I was like, that's really nice. Thank you, that also checks out. That's very kind and helpful of you. And then she's like, and then later I went to check on it and then it had reformed and it looked so good, so I ate it all. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I don't wanna do this. But that feeling you had for two days, and this is really fucked up of me to have said this, I know, but use what you can when you can. I was like, that feeling, that shithole feeling you have for two days? That's karma, bitch! Um, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Next up is Chloe Elizabeth Wilson, who is a writer who graduated with a Master's of Screenwriting in 2019. I've been a huge fan of her newsletter, Tall Tales, since 2020, and she's currently writing a novel, which I saw on her website, which I obviously can't wait to read. Please welcome her to the stage. Hello. <laughs> I printed mine out like a nerd. Um, cool. So when I was 23, I went to meet my best friend Nick for a holiday in New York. Uh, and Nick had been performing on a cruise ship prior to this for 12 months in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, as you do, uh, whereby the windowless box that he lived in below deck was actually so small he couldn't extend his six-foot-four frame in any direction. So he was just, like, constantly bending at the hips or knees, which, um, as you can imagine, is really good for one's mental and physical health. Um, we were reunited on the pavement outside a painfully trendy but also painfully small Brooklyn cafe, which was when I realised that he had put on his cruise ship name tag that morning before he boarded his flight out of habit. <laughs> I feel like a zoo animal that found a way out, he said. We spent the next couple of days sifting through everything we'd missed in the 12 months we'd been apart. Most of my stories were fueled by selective optimism. I was on a brief winning streak and it was easy to believe that life had always been that way. Most of Nick's stories were colored by uncertainty. He was feeling lost and he wanted answers. Then, after three glasses of white sangria in Hell's Kitchen one afternoon, he found them. Cheryl was short, particularly when standing next to Nick. She had an apple-shaped face and long acrylic nails that were permanently wrapped around a Starbucks iced coffee cup. <laughs> she was... She swirled the remaining ice uh, in her cup between sentences for dramatic effect. She was direct and self-assured. She was born with a gift. She was a psychic. We found Cheryl by chance. We'd stumbled out of the bar in the direction of tacos, and when Nick saw the fluorescent psychic reading sign, he essentially tackled me into what Cheryl called her office. In reality, it was a shopfront so small, I can only assume it previously housed a Polly Pocket display home. <laughs> I'd like a reading, Nick said. Cheryl swirled what was left of the muddy ice and indicated for him to take a seat. 
I should mention here that Nick is one of the quickest-witted people I've ever met in my life. The man can construct a scathing one-liner in the time it would take a regular person to fart. So this is important information because when this woman in the former Polly Pocket display home, uh, who may or may not have been a psychic, gave him instructions, in this moment in time, he accepted them. What could go wrong? I was born with a gift, she said. She swirled the ice. Uh, and I want to let you know that I'm not going to charge you for the work that I do, but I am going to charge you for the material items. We nodded. It seemed reasonable. <laughs> she asked Nick a series of questions that were sweeping and general and very much the kind of questions you would expect to be asked by a psychic in Hell's Kitchen. Then, after a while, she held her hand up as if to say she'd heard enough. She had her diagnosis. You have a curse. She said, I know, right? <laughs> As if this information was like completely commonplace. The room began to spin. I was a little bit drunk. <laughs> the good news is that curses are curable. All you have to do is purchase a selection of material items from a psychic in Hell's Kitchen. Great news. <laughs> Nick paid 120 American dollars for a bag of dirty twigs a small crystal, and four candles sight unseen that Cheryl said she would light in the church. <laughs> Which denomination of church is it, Nick asked. Romanian Catholic, no further questions. <laughs> Nick was to bathe in the dirty twigs for three nights in a row and carry the crystal with him everywhere for the next week. Cheryl would do her part and light the candles at the church, which she definitely did. Uh, and then we were to come back for a follow-up appointment. So we were staying in the basement of a Brooklyn brownstone that was owned by this like, very stern German woman called Leanne, um, who took a dislike to us from the second that we got there. <laughs> she hated us even more after Nick filled her bath with dirty twigs three nights in a row. <laughs> the public Airbnb review that she left on my account was bathroom hygiene could have been better. <laughs> and that's real, you can find that if you look me up on Airbnb. Uh, Nick followed Cheryl's instructions to the letter. He was feeling lighter, and maybe the alleged curse was lifting. He slept with the crystal under his pillow and could feel it drawing any and all bad vibes from his soul as he slept. Then, on the day of our follow-up appointment, Cheryl disappeared. Hey Cheryl, are you getting these messages? Nick wrote. Nothing. Days passed. We watched an entire season of Glee in Leanne's basement, which now that I think about it is perhaps another reason to think we were altogether ridiculous people. <laughs> As the days wore on, Nick's sea legs grew stronger and he started to wonder if it was the crystal or the holiday that was clearing him of his maritime acquired despair. He began to wake with the sunlight. When Cheryl eventually did get back to him, he left her on red. We walked halfway across the Brooklyn Bridge at sunset and Nick tossed the crystal into the East River. It was very Olsen Twins New York Minute. <laughs> In March of 2020, I was dumped up with. And don't worry, we're coming back around. The man who dumped up with me was tall and handsome and he looked like a cartoon pirate. He said ridiculous things like, how many less snacks would I have to eat in a row to be completely repulsive to you? After he dumped up with me, I sat on the bathroom floor howling like a mangy wolf. In any other year, this would have marked the beginning of a brief but painful mourning period, 
whereby one to two months later I would realise how wrong we were for each other and in the process enjoy a slew of sloppy kisses with strangers. But alas, this was 2020. And don't worry, this isn't a story about lockdown, this is a story about YouTube. I don't remember when I watched my first YouTube tarot reading, but I can tell you that the account the algorithm fed me was called Aqua Consciousness. <laughs> she just appeared in my suggestions bar one day and for whatever reason, she stuck around. Her channel was the equivalent of amateur porn in a sea of like abs and questionable power dynamics. It was just her in her house, poorly lit shuffling cards. She was a Pisces, as am I, and her readings were intended only for her fellow fish, which made me go, damn YouTube, your algorithm really needs to unionize. <laughs> My tarot oracle became a weekly beacon of hope. After a few weeks, I discovered that she was actually also a real estate agent, which if I'm honest, was like quite a big turn off. Um, but she kept saying things like, you know that there's more to unfold between you and your person. And they view you as very hot and sexy, but they're also very impressed by you and think you have nice hair. <laughs> I would have bought 10 bags of dirty twigs and a whole fucking house of crystals from that woman if it meant that she could bring the pirate back. As a, oh, that was cute. <laughs> as a side note, I actually have a friend who grew up in LA who told me this story once about this woman she went to high school with who did become a real estate agent as well. And she was known for being able to sell even the most haunted of houses in LA. It was like her thing. And the secret was that she asked the owners to buy like a five foot tall crystal and keep it in one of the closets when she showed people the house. And the owners always did it because they were really desperate and she always ended up selling the house. The crystal cost like $850, but this was LA, so I can assume that's like the equivalent of a $30 Coles bouquet. <laughs> anyway, one by one, other tarot accounts were presented to me. They snuck in unannounced on my homepage, in the discovery bar, up next in the queue. I collected four more trusted sources on my subscriptions page. Each morning, I would wake up, reach for my phone, and open the YouTube app in the hopes that I could start the day with good news. That was the thing about having a rotation. If one reader said we were unequivocally rotten, which they very rarely did, uh, the next would set the reunion date. Life continued on like this for months. Given that the rest of my life was essentially just thinking up new tiny snacks to go with my 5 p.m. glass of wine, it felt really good to have something to believe in. <laughs> a couple of times the pirate reached out on the same week that one of the readers said, your person will reach out this week. But if I'm honest with you, they were always saying that. He would reach out and we'd go for a walk under the guise of being friends and then I'd go home and get disappointed and return to my world of mystical possibilities. After a while, it stopped being about him entirely. It was about the promise of reinvention. The pirate and I never got back together, which is actually great news because I finally realized we were not right for each other about a year later. But in non-pandemic years, that's like two months, so it's not quite as embarrassing as it sounds. Although I'm very aware that all of this is deeply embarrassing, so thank you for being here today. <laughs> uh, at some point, perhaps when I found out that he had a new girlfriend, but also perhaps independently, I stopped watching the videos. I recently looked them all up again and they're still there. And they're still saying things like, your person will reach out this week and tell you a story about how their cat scratched them in the shower and they thought of you. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the ways that we cope with uncertainty. I'm not very good at it myself, so being interested in it as a concept feels productive, even if I don't take any of it on board. 
Our lives are so precarious, but it's impossible to really hold that in any given moment. I think if we walked around with an acute understanding of how close we could be to death at any given moment, our brains would just like explode in the frozen foods aisle. <laughs> One of my favorite writers, Melissa Broder, touches on this often. This is a quote from her aptly titled novel, The Pisces. Could anyone be totally ignorant of the void? Didn't all of us have an awareness of it, a brush with it, perhaps only once or twice, like at a funeral for someone very close to you when you walked out of the funeral home and it stopped making sense for just a blip that you existed? Or perhaps a bad mushroom trip when one's fellow trippers looked like plastic? Could there be people on this earth who never stopped for a moment, not once, to say, what is everything? I think we turn to the Cheryls, the Crystals, the part-time tarot readers, full-time real estate agents to occupy the parts of our brains that would otherwise be focused on the void. And isn't that beautiful? One of my favorite human instincts is to weave vastness into narrative, even if it costs 120 American dollars. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Chloe, so much. Next up, second last, Osman Faruqi is an award-winning political and culture journalist and editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. He's the host of popular podcasts, The Culture and The Drop, and I'm very excited to have him, him here today. Please welcome him to the stage. How, how good is storytelling? This is awesome. Um, my story is about uh, meeting in-laws at Christmas for the first time. Um, it's not my story. I have some issues with dating. I only date white women. It's weird. Um, and that means when I meet their parents, it's all just weird racist conversations. Uh, Pakistani, are ya? Um, and all they want to do is talk about cricket or refugees. Um, anyway, this is not about that. Um, I'll save that stuff for therapy. Uh, this happened to a friend of a friend, and it, it was a <laughs> this is This is a weird story. Um, the, the problem with deciding whether or not to bring someone home for the first time, it's always a little bit awkward, it's always a little bit tricky. And, and there's like a, an awkward timing around it, right? Like one or two weeks into a relationship, it's not really appropriate. A year or two when it is appropriate. What happens if you're like four or five months? You're not really sure where it's going, but Christmas is coming around. So sometimes it's a mismatch. Uh, in this instance, my friend, uh, this is a relationship between a woman and a man. She's the woman. She wasn't totally sure that she wanted to bring uh, him around to her family, but he was really gung-ho on the relationship. He said, let's do it. Uh, they lived in Melbourne. Um, his family was from Adelaide. And he said, come visit my family in Adelaide. It'll be wonderful. And she said, you know what? I kind of like you. I wasn't really ready for it, but let's give it a go. What's the worst that could happen? We'll find out. Um, they flew to Adelaide and he said, oh, so we're actually going to my auntie's farm. She lives about 60 kilometres away in the Barossa Valley. It's about just under an hour drive. And she said, that's great, a farm. This could actually be a really wonderful few days away. Uh, on the trip, he said, oh, you might have heard of my auntie. And she said, oh, really? Like, like, who is it? And she started racking her brain for who she knew that might live on a farm in the Barossa. His auntie was um, Maggie Beer. <laughs> we across Maggie Beer, the lovely old lady, cook and chef, yeah. And she's like, well, this is red hot. This is awesome. I'm going to have a wonderful three days over Christmas at Maggie Beer's farm 
in the middle of summer. This is awesome. She gets to the house. It's beautiful. It's on the banks of a river. I think Maggie's filmed some stuff there before, so you might be familiar with the setting. A, a wonderful kind of cottage. Uh, the weather was stunning. It was an incredible uh, setup for a wonderful Christmas. The first day, the kind of relatives all sort of come in. She's the, the only new one this time around. People might have experienced this. Sometimes there's new partners. In this particular instance, everyone was sort of coupled up for a while, but she was the new one, so people were very excited to meet her and to get to know her. Uh, this is Christmas Eve, and they just drank and drank and drank. It was kind of a way to settle the, the nerves, some of that social anxiety. Uh, they love to drink. It's Adelaide. It's the Brossa. There's wine there, I think. Um, and they had a really wonderful time. They ended up going to bed just around midnight, and, and she woke up pretty soon afterwards, about an hour or two afterwards, really, really hungry. She realised that she hadn't really eaten between the travel and the, the nerves of meeting Maggie Beer and the family. Uh, and she thought, hang on a minute, it's Christmas Eve. Well, it's actually Christmas now this morning. This is Maggie Beer's house. There's got to be a bunch of food in the kitchen. Um, so she kind of snuck out of the bed. She goes down into the kitchen. And, of course, there's, like, enormous amounts of food. There's the Christmas ham. There's turkeys. There's, uh, what do white people eat at Christmas? I don't know, roast potatoes. Uh, tasteless stuff. Um, uh, and she's like, look, I'm not going to touch the Christmas food because that'll be really obvious that I've interfered with these things. So she opens the fridge, and in the fridge, there is, of course, a Christmas pudding, a very, a very large Christmas pudding. And she's like, oh, fuck, I'm really fucking hungry. Um, but I can't take a bite of the Christmas pudding. That's really awkward. But then she kind of rummages around a bit, and there's a, there's a much smaller Christmas pudding in there. And she's like, oh, this must be like a... She cooked up this absurd theory. She's like, oh, this must just be the uh, kind of like tester pudding that Maggie makes to... <laughs> test the humidity and the oven temperature or whatever. She's like, I'll just eat this Christmas, tiny little Christmas. She has a bite. It's delicious. Remember, she's like wasted, right? Um, or that kind of midpoint where you're drunk and maybe getting hung over and you don't really know what you're doing. She eats the whole tiny Christmas pudding. Awesome. She collapses into bed. The whole house gets woken up the next morning, clanging of pots and pans. And it's Maggie. And she's in the kitchen really early, smashing these pans together. Crash, crash, crash. Everyone, into the kitchen now. Everyone's pretty groggy. They had a pretty hectic night. They're not really sure what the hell's going on. She starts to feel a bit nervous, but she's like, something else must have happened. I just ate a small pudding. What could this be? They file into the kitchen one by one. Maggie Beer says immediately, who ate my pudding? Everyone is confused. She has this sinking feeling. She's also feeling a bit ill because the pudding, it's a, it's a brandy and kumquat pudding. Again, this is one of Maggie's classic puddings. It's, it's rich, it's delicious. Maggie says, you all know that I make one big pudding every year for us to eat, and then I make a smaller pudding, and I have that marinating for a year, and we eat it the following year. You all know that this is what I do. Who ate the pudding? And the family's kind of looking around. They're, you know, not really sure who would do it. The, the girl, she feels pretty awkward. She's pretty embarrassed. She doesn't admit it. Maggie says, there's no Christmas meal, no Christmas lunch, no Christmas dinner until we find out who ate this pudding. It gets pretty awkward. They all go back to the rooms. And the boyfriend of my friend says, look, it's okay. If you just tell me, I'll figure it out. I'll take the heat. 
Auntie Maggie, she's pretty agitated, but she really likes me. We can figure it out. It obviously was you, because we all know not to eat the pudding, and you snuck out. You came back in, I heard you. That's crumbs all over the bed. You definitely ate the pudding. She, she denies it. She's, she, she, she thinks that she can get away with it. It's crazy. This, there's this weird stalemate in the house for like the next, next kind of three to four hours. This, this will happen pretty early in the morning. Uh, one, of, one of the family members, not Maggie, has this idea, look, Maggie's not going to feed us, but let's do something together to make the most of this sunshine. So they go down by the river and there's a bunch of kayaks and canoes and it's a wonderful day and they think, Maggie will cool off. Let's just spend the day having a bit of a picnic by the side, drinking some more wine, eating some snacks and kind of, you know, sailing or rowing or whatever the hell you do in a kayak down the river. Uh, and they're doing it and the, the, the boyfriend and, and my friend in this instance are in a two-person canoe you know, the water's a bit choppy, you know? They're rocking around, it's a small canoe. She starts to feel a bit queasy. She's had a lot to drink, hasn't eaten for 24 hours, except for a brandy-filled, kumquat-glazed pudding. She says, I, I, need, I need to get off this boat, I need to get off this boat. So they quickly row the boat to the shore where all the family are picnicking just on the hill. She doubles over, throws up, and the stench of brandy and kumquat-glaze is apparent for everyone to see. And everyone is stunned, appalled, offended, upset. Maggie, thankfully, didn't have to see that. She was at the house. She refused to come to the picnic. She wasn't impressed. And her boyfriend says, I think, I think you should leave Christmas. And she's pretty upset. She's upset because she, I mean, she did do the wrong thing. She felt a bit guilty. This is a really bad way for it to come out. But she says, she says, look, okay, if that if it means a lot, like, I'll, I'll, I'll go if, if you're okay to drive me back to, to Adelaide to the airport. And then she hears the worst kind of sentence you can hear from a partner after you've had a fight, this sort of situation. No, don't worry, I'll, I'll call you an Uber. She never saw them again. That's it. Thank you so much, Osman. So the final storyteller for tonight is Jordan Barr, who's a comedian, writer and performer whose debut show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival ran a sold-out season. There's a list on um, the internet, on The Guardian, called The Ten Funniest Things That Jordan Wrote, and everyone should go and look at them afterwards because they're all very funny, just like her. I'm very excited to have her here tonight. Please make her feel welcome. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, I'm going to uh, read off my phone, like, it's 2014. <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, uh, my name's Jordan, uh, and dealing with meetings is not something that I've had to deal with much in my adult life. I also, funnily enough, watching everybody's stories, I was like, oh, meeting has a few meanings. <laughs> I was like, oh, you meet people. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, I was like, uh, it, like meetings, it, I just haven't had to deal with it. It's always seemed like something uh, very full-grown, like, oh, let me get my latte, get to that meeting with Darren. <laughs> There's always like some weird code word attached, some jargon, like, oh, we better push that 
PTD and get the BLP on the DRT. <laughs> Meetings with shoulder pads and laptops. Someone is running late. Michelle Pfeiffer and I am Sam. Um, it's runners and tights on the tram. It's a woman called Barb. It's Michelle Pfeiffer and I am Sam. Um, there's no woman more glamorous and more professional than Michelle Pfeiffer and I am Sam. She was chaotic, took meetings on the phone, ate Reese's Pieces in a bizarre way. Fuck, I want to be Michelle Pfeiffer and I am Sam. Her life was a mess. She was incredibly insecure and was always in a hurry. Ah, the glamorous life. It was never a dream of mine to live peacefully by the sea. Nah, 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 nah. Give me the, a life ridden with stomach ulcers and deadlines. That's what adulthood is. Give me that constant, unprepared for meetings, making it up on the fly and climbing the corporate ladder life. I'd always watch these women who'd clearly had no balance, whose personal situations were a fucking disaster, but who achieved a lot professionally as women to aspire to be. <laughs> Fuck your interpersonal relationships, Erin Brockovich. You've got to save the town. <laughs> I do find myself in a meeting. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I do find myself in a hurry, missing deadlines, playing catch-ups, but I'm not an, uh, working for a cool company. I'm not suing a large corporation for poisoning the town's water. I'm not helping an intellectually disabled man to get custody of his child. I am a stand-up comedian freaking out about how much I post on Instagram <laughs> and frantically keeping up with pop culture gossip. I'm not eating Reese's Pieces in a weird way. I'm just um, giving myself acid reflux from my addiction to Hungry Jacks. <laughs> and an inability to understand when to stop drinking caffeine. Is this the fucking vibe, though? Like, is this the trap? Like, are we all just crazy busy, like, ultimately doing, like, not much to distract from what we should be doing? Yuck, I really hate myself sometimes, but it is true, right? I'm running around trying to organise birthday drinks at the moment, and the thing that's plaguing my mind is that I don't have a solid group. <laughs> Like, sorry, turtles, you'll have to wait. Um, Jordan is off to write another think piece on the nature of adult friendships. All I do is talk about Michelle Pfeiffer and complain. <laughs> I loved the idea of meetings as a child. I just knew that a business meeting was an expensive lunch and some cigarettes. Um, the only meeting I ever really had as a child was an interview for an academic scholarship, which you'll be shocked to find I did get. Um, I went into the office completely unprepared. Um, and talking out of my ass. Um, but because of those women in film and their suits and their kitten heels, I knew how to approach it. I was Olivia Benson bluffing to get someone to admit to murder. I was Murphy Brown in that episode where she gets an abortion. I was Michelle Pfeiffer and I am Sam. <laughs> this big lady, she might not have been that big, but everything's big when you're little, um, was sitting across at the end of the desk and she asked me about my interests. And I like singing and dancing and social justice. <laughs> Still, <laughs> um, the evidence of that, of my social justice passion was that I put on a crazy hair day at my school to raise money for cystic fibrosis. <laughs> Years later, I finally looked up what cystic fibrosis was. <laughs> she asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up and I said, I want to be the Secretary General of the UN. <laughs> Next question, boom. I'm ready, I'm a fucking animal. I'm dominating the field. I'm Michelle Pfeiffer. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a brain surgeon. I'm unstoppable. How do you combine your passions for music and social justice? Hmm, hard one. I consider it. Boom, got it. <laughs> I'd start a pop band, a, a pop band aimed at disadvantaged children. It'd be like the Wiggles, but more about ending cycles of poverty than learning how to spell. <laughs> 
she's flawed. She doesn't know how to handle this fully grown woman in front of her. Oh, you thought this was Jordan Barr, local 11-year-old? You idiot. This is Michelle Pfeiffer and I am Sam. I am, I am Samming the I am Sam out of this. I fucking love this. She offers me a scholarship on the spot. <laughs> I don't fully understand what she's asking and I accept, which I think is ironic. <laughs> I cry on the way to my car because I realise that saying yes to the question I didn't understand means that I have to change schools, leave all my friend. Fuck. <laughs> I shouldn't have brought it so hard. I should have been more like Bones from Bones. A little bit of vulnerability wouldn't have gone astray. Now I must sleep in the bed that I have made. The trials and tribulations of being a child genius, I think to myself. I sat in the back of the car wiping tears away as I imagine that this is the first of many sacrifices in my academic life and career. <laughs> Never fear, young girl. <laughs> Soon you will be a stand-up stroke actress who hasn't read a book cover to cover since 2017. <laughs> and the next book she will read will be Midnight Sun, Twilight from Edward's perspective. You will actually make little to no sacrifices for your education. <laughs> In fact, at every turn, you create your own obstacles. <laughs> I suppose I'm not really Michelle Pfeiffer in I Am Sam. I have the disorganisation and the mess, but I don't have the high-paying job and the challenged relationship with my son. Um, but perhaps these shoulder-padded women aren't there to represent what we should be. Maybe they're just a tool. They're our, like, Sasha Fierce when we need to get out of a parking fine when we need to tell that creepy guy that we don't want to do a photography session. <laughs> right now, I am Michelle Pfeiffer and I am Sam. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Goodbye. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thank you all so much for coming out. This is really exciting. I organised this very last minute, so it's nice that it's happened. Thank you to all the storytellers, to Rupert, to Sananda, to Chloe, to Osman and to Jordan. Um, I've got a website coming soon. I'm trying to make this a bit more professional. It's all been recorded, so you'll be able to listen to it on the podcast later. Go see some fringe shows. Thank you all so much for coming.